Welcome, everyone, to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Last Week in Texas podcast. This is Wayne Stacy from BCLT, and once again, we're here with Michael Smith. As you know, if it happened, he's the one to tell you about it. So I'll certainly try. Uh, well, like I said, if it's worth knowing, you're gonna you're gonna know about it, Michael. So uh, let's just kick this off and tell us what happened in Texas last week. Well, the, the thing I wanted to start with is uh, we had some um, uh, analysis out last week on filing trends in 2021. Uh, Scott Graham with ALM was analyzing United Patents recent report of patent filings and gave us some numbers to kind of see what's happening numerically with the, with the cases. We know that, that patent infringement filings were essentially flat last year at around not quite 3,800 cases. The Western District of Texas had 25% of those cases, and Judge Albright had 23%. The other 2% were split between the other judges in the district. For those of y'all that want to know where he was last year, last year he was at 20%, so clearly that's leveling off. But Scott noticed something that wasn't in the report, but that if you look at the data throughout the year, you can tell by the end of the year, the filings in Judge Albright's court were trending down a little bit. And uh, the people he talked to at United said they think that's due to recent Federal Circuit venue opinions, and I think that's probably correct. Uh, Delaware came in second with 22%, and the Eastern District of Texas was third with 11%. Uh, another trend towards the end of the year is that Judge Gilstrap's share in Marshall in the, Western, in the Eastern District was picking up a little bit. He was up to about 8% of all cases nationally. The Delaware judges have all got 4 to 5%. Uh, so it looks like, uh, we'll know better in another quarter or two, it looks like some patent plaintiffs are coming back to the Eastern District, um, or that might simply be, I saw a trend right the, 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 on New Year's Eve, a plaintiff filed about a dozen cases in Marshall and then kept filing the beginning of the year, uh, so it may just be one filer. But anyway, that's what's happening with filing trends in the state so far. Well, it'll be, be interesting to see. Um, you know, what happens long-term, but notably Northern District of Texas is becoming almost irrelevant. Is that fair? Well, it, they have the problem that without the patent pilot district, you don't know which judge you're going to get. And for the last 10 years, the same three judges have handled all the patent cases. So you knew you were going to get judges with expertise who wanted to hear the cases. Now, if you file a case in the Northern District, you don't know who you'll get and um, you can't count on uh, the experience that you could previously. And uh, that seems to be uh, borne out in the filings. There's just not much movement in the filings. It's not that they've gone down much since the patent pilot program ended. It's just that they, they never went up much to start with. Same thing with the Southern District. There are some cases that, that are just going to be filed in Dallas or going to be filed in Houston but it's, it's not going to be statistically a large number. Well, so all those in California know you file a case out here, you go on the wheel and you hold your breath to see what's going to happen. It's always, always fun. And that mad scramble to, to see, to see what set of rules and uh, what uh, courtroom procedure you're going to get to follow. Yeah. Yeah. Plaintiffs don't like that kind of fun. <laughs> so, so they, they tend to look for uh, it. it Plaintiffs look for certainty, 
you look for certainty, what procedures are you going to have? Are you going to have a judge that wants to hear your cases? And that's something that we're going to start seeing less of in the Western District because Judge Albright's cases that are transferred, that he transfers to Austin, now go on the wheel with the Austin judges. And that introduces, I'm working on a paper with an Austin lawyer right now for a state bar seminar on differences between the Western District and the Eastern District. And one thing that we're seeing in the Western District is if your case ends up in Austin, you don't have the same certainty as far as um, how the judge is going to handle your case and what procedures they're going to use. So that's something we're going to be looking at very closely over the next few months. Well, and, and we kind of continue this theme of causing yourself unnecessary stress. Uh, it appears that a couple couple parties got pretty crossways with Judge Gilstrap on a settlement agreement. Yeah, I, I was sitting in a mediation last week in Dallas with Judge Folsom when I heard when I heard about this case that had just come out. The parties got Judge Gilstrap to take their case off the January docket because they said we've had a settlement. They then wrote back and said we we can't we can't finalize the settlement. Judge, so we want 10 more days to go back in front of Judge Folsom, who was mediating that case as well, and try one more time. And Judge Gilstrap said, okay, well, here's a show cause order. Uh, show up to, and tell me why you shouldn't be sanctioned for apparent misrepresentations made to the court. And he denied the motion to stay. But here's the part you, you'll appreciate as I did. The parties wanted 10 days to mediate again. The judge denied the motion, but he set the hearing for 10 days later. So they're going back in front of Folsom, but they're going back with this very calculated pressure from the trial court to get, get your case worked out. I, I've been in this situation. It seems like almost every settlement you run into this situation. And sometimes you really do need a nudge from the trial court to, to tell the backsliding uh, parties or client representatives, no, I'm sorry, this is what a settlement means. You don't get to write your own terms after the settlement. You needed to do that during the settlement. But it was a very interesting case. Well, let's. I, I was thinking about how you even defend yourself. You've got the show cause order on one side, and then you've got the confidentiality agreement with the mediator on the other side. <clears throat> That's just a, a good place to be yelled at. Um, it, it, it's a good place to work out a, a settlement. <laughs> so, Michael, I've seen uh, several of the mediators out here that uh, use a special clause in there that says, you know, here are the key terms. And I'll give you two weeks to work out the, the secondary terms. And if you can't work them out, I do baseball arbitration on those terms. And you're agreeing to it now. And Absolutely. I, I love it. Absolutely. And I've done that with, with several mediators recently. And that is a great way to resolve this so that you have the ability to say, well, if we can't re reach resolution, the mediator can handle that. And it, 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 in my mind, it helps the parties because it keeps you, both of you from getting too greedy and gives you somebody else to, to, to resolve that issue. I think that's a great idea. Well, Michael, and maybe more importantly, it helps the lawyers manage clients. Yes. Um, so uh, not that clients ever need managing. So um, our next interesting piece uh, coming out of the, the Texas courts was a trial continuance due to COVID and a trial denial of continuance due to COVID. So this is what I like to see. We got, we got bracketing orders from, from Judge Gilstrap. One, uh, two parties came in and said, we've got a witness that's come down with COVID and we're set for trial in January. We'd like a continuance. One 
got the continuance and one didn't, and you can tell why. The first case, the court granted the continuance. And in that case, the defendant said, our technical expert who covers infringement and invalidity has tested positive. Uh, and Judge Gilstrap said, all right, well, that's an important witness. And that witness has to be in the courtroom when the plaintiff is putting on their case so that they can hear what's said and they can respond to it in front of the jury. So he said, that's a good reason to push it off. So he pushed the trial off uh, to February. Another party came in and said, okay, we're a defendant. We've got a witness that's tested positive. We want a continuance too. And Judge Gilstrap said, no. In this case, it wasn't a critical witness for the defendant. It wasn't an expert. It was a may call fact witness. So what Judge Gilstrap points out is this witness is not going to testify until the defendant's case, which is several days off, and they may test negative by then. And their attendance during the plaintiff's case in chief uh, isn't necessary. And although the judge doesn't say it in the order, as we know, there's a rule that prohibits fact witnesses from being in the courtroom before their time to testify so they don't hear the testimony of other witnesses. So this witness couldn't have been in the courtroom anyway in most cases. The court also said you, you also have the ability to call the witness by deposition or remotely. Uh, so, uh, so under these circumstances, the court said this isn't a sufficient reason to delay the trial because of this one fact witness. So it's a great pair of cases you can look at and tell clients, okay, if this is the fact situation, we're not going to be able to get a continuance in all likelihood, but if you've got these facts, we probably can. So, so Michael, there's a piece I'd, I'd love to get your opinion on here. I mean, we all know that calling a, a witness by deposition that you never intended to call by deposition is a disaster. You never set up the, the questions uh, during the deposition to be played to a jury. Now, this it seems that the judge recognized that and threw in this or remotely as, a, as an option to really level the, the playing field, uh, but I haven't seen that procedure used before. Yeah, that, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, Judge Gilstrap had a remote witness from Belgium in a case um, in 2020, I think it was, and it did not go well. Uh, on the other hand, Judge Albright is fine with people testifying remotely. It doesn't bother him, but in Marshall, they found that to be a very unattractive way of handling it. So I was, candidly, I was very surprised to see that language from Judge Gilstrap that or remotely was a possibility because my understanding was that they didn't allow you to do that. But what he may, he, he may be referring to here that the witness was, I mean, you're right. You may have taken a deposition that you could play. If you didn't, maybe the party could come in and say, okay, let's take a, a trial deposition three days before trial, which I know was happening all last week in the Waco case I was I was observing. Um, maybe he was referring to somebody doing a trial deposition, but since this person was a may call anyway, I'd be willing to bet that person was not actually going to be called. Somebody just seized on this would be a great way to get a continuance. And maybe, maybe the judge saw that or thought he saw that. And that was another reason why, why he said, you know, there are other ways you can do this. And it, it, the bottom line is it didn't justify the enormous inconvenience and expense of pushing the entire trial off. Well, moving from, from Gilstrap's court, uh, Judge Payne had a, I think a, a really interesting set of motions to compel that was accompanied by a, a fee award. Um, 
an, uh, I don't know, it didn't seem like it was egregious, but something that the judge Payne may be going forward uh, will always consider on how to handle fees for discovery requests. Well, you're right to pick up on that because that is the significant thing here. What you have here is six motions to compel by the plaintiff, two from the defendant, and the court is clearly unhappy with the defendant's use of 33D, uh, especially since what happened here was the plaintiff asked for a monthly company-wide total of something from Walmart, and Walmart said, okay, well, here's the ticker for every sale at every store that we have for the time period which amounted to tens of thousands of whatever. The, the judge was not happy with that. But the important thing is, so the judge says, okay, you win this one, you win this one, you win this one, you win this one. And then in the end, when Judge Payne first came to the Eastern District um, 11 years ago, 10 years ago, actually, he brought with him an understanding of Rule 37A5A, which is that whoever loses a discovery fight pays fees. It's not sanctions. It doesn't require egregious conduct. That's just routine. And everyone lost their mind when we started getting, uh, we kept calling it sanctioned and he kept explaining it's not a sanction. You lost a discovery motion. You, your position wasn't substantially justified. So pay $2,000. He kind of stopped doing that after two or three years. But I think this case is a reminder that his view of the rule is that if your position wasn't substantially justified, then you ought to be paying fees. $25,000 is a lot of money for a discovery um, fees, given the usual size of what comes up uh, in that court. So that's a substantial amount of money, but you're correct that it is, a, it is a significant development that he's reminding people that if you're not substantially justified, you have to be worried about an award of fees and that I'm not considering it a sanction. It's simply, this is what the court tells me I ought to be doing. So word to the wise. Well, and, and Michael, I think this is a great case for a lot of people to go look at 33D. Um, you know, both sides abuse, abuse 33D in a lot of litigations, uh, but you can see here, somebody was probably chuckling like, oh, let their expert deal with this massive amount of data when it seems likely that somebody on their side probably could have done some sorting and, and made that happen. And that's exactly what the court said is somebody on your side could have done this sorting and, and could have made this happen. And what you produced is certainly not what your people look at for this. So that, that's the sort of thing somebody should have checked. And, and, I, and I feel confident that Judge Payne is sending a signal here. Was that substantially justified? Um, I mean, you can't walk in, make a ridiculous argument uh, in this context and not expect to get dinged is I think the it's certainly the message I'm taking away from it. Uh, just because I can make an argument doesn't, what was it, Star Trek Six, where the president of the Federation said that, just because you can do a thing doesn't mean you should do a thing. So well, again, well, word I, to the wise. My, my dad wasn't a sci-fi fan. He had a much simpler rule. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> Uh, we're lawyers. We don't, we don't think we don't, we don't pay attention to that as much as we should. Well, uh, surprising case. And I got to tell you, when you, when you first raised this, I, I, I thought, well, he must've, he must've misstated what was going on here, but there was a summary judgment on damages from judge Albright in the Northern district of Texas. 
That's correct. Uh, Judge Albright, uh, when he first started on the bench, he was moonlighting in the Dallas division with patent cases. And, and let me, th this is a summary judgment opinion from uh, Judge Albright, where he grants partial summary judgment on damages. The defendant sought several things, and I'll get to that in a minute. But why is Judge Albright hearing a Dallas case? Well, way back in January of 2019, Judge Albright only had one patent case, and Judge Kincaid in Dallas had a patent case that was about to go to trial. And I personally think that this was a practical joke that Judge Kincaid called Judge Albright and said, hey, you want to hear patent cases? I've got one. It's ready to go to trial. It's all set to go to trial in February. So let me hand this to you. So Judge, Judge uh, Albright takes the case. And the reason I know the timing is that back when I was looking at Judge Albright's first cases that were filed in 2017 and 2018, I was numbering the cases like they were works by Mozart. So there was A001 and A002, and this case was A002. This was Judge Albright's second assigned patent case, or second oldest patent case. Um, so Judge Albright gets the case. They reset it for trial in April of 2020 so that they can do some more work, and then COVID hits. So we can't try the case. Well, of course, Judge Albright's been trying cases throughout COVID, so what was the deal here? The deal here was this is a Dallas case. And Judge, Chief Judge Lynn from the Northern District of Dallas explained that unlike Waco and Marshall and Sherman, where the district judges are operating in courthouses that don't have other entities in them, the Dallas courts operate in a federal building that has multiple federal agencies in it, and everybody uses the same elevators. So she can't protect and isolate and segregate a jury the way that they can in smaller courthouses. So she has had quite a time trying to get back to trying cases. So Judge Albright hasn't been able to try that case there either. So the case was reset several times uh, and the parties are even resetting uh, as recently as last week, they were filing notices that they were gonna push back to date to report back to the court on settlement discussions. So this order is something that came out uh, to deal with a pending summary judgment motion on some damages issues. Well, the, the order itself, I think, seems to be a, an early and important one for, for Judge Albright on some of his damage analysis. We, don't, we haven't seen a lot of them get this far and in this much detail. Uh, that's correct. If you sit in his courtroom in a pretrial conference, you'll see a lot of analysis in detail from the court uh, about damages issues, but we don't see a lot of it in opinions. But that was one thing I noticed last week, a party tried to get up and argue for limiting a plaintiff's damages opinions. And the judge didn't just ask questions. He gave the defendant's lawyer a treatise on here's what the plaintiff is arguing. Here's why what the plaintiff is saying is sufficient. Here's how why it's correctly apportioned. He, he Judge Albright's background includes some cases working on damages in California, so he's very able to, to deal with these issues on the fly. Uh, but in this case, we're, we're getting some written analysis. It talks about uh, marking. It talks about actual notices. Actual notice, you've got Arcticat uh, analyzed, and then you've got analysis of whether a lost profits claim uh, is appropriate to be presented to the jury. And like Judge Gilstrap, in his November trial, Judge Albright found that the, the uh, analysis that was presented on lost profits uh, 
well, no, it's the other way around. Judge Gilstrap excluded reasonable royalty and allowed lost profits. Here, Judge Albright excluded evidence of lost profits. So it's a very useful case uh, on damages on those points. Well, Michael, I was looking to, to skip forward to another Western District of Texas, or actually another Judge Albright case, but this one in the Western District of Texas about his courtroom procedures. Right. This is the case that settled Monday morning, but it had uh, three hearings last week. And during the course of the week, Judge Albright put out a, a, uh, his standard order on courtroom procedures. It's standard for him to issue the order, but the language changes. It changes as the, court, as the COVID protocols change. It changes as he sees other things to tell parties. So I thought it was interesting to see what he put in his procedures case for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, there's a statement in there that says that there will be no bench conferences in the presence of the jury during trial. And I know that was the court's practice earlier uh, in the year. But having sat in on the pretrial conferences, he expressly tells the parties to approach on certain things. So when you're reading that order, understand that the court may have made exceptions to it uh, that you wouldn't be aware of if you didn't see what was actually happening in the case. It's also got the procedures for public access. Uh, if he sets a hearing that's on a public uh, Zoom call and anybody can dial in and watch the hearing, not the trial, the trial you can only watch in audio unless you're a participant in the trial. In order to keep the number of people down, he makes the video feed available to members of the trial team. But I have to caution people the court can see who's dialed in, and if they see somebody who's not on their list, that they know it's not an expert in the case. It's not a lawyer in the case who's simply working outside the courtroom so that the courtroom isn't overcrowded. They will call you down, and they will uh, cut you off of the feed. But it, it, it's, it gives people the ability to hear trials and watch hearings. Uh, but the other interesting thing it's got is he's got express instructions for remote decorum. Here's what you're supposed to do if you're just watching a trial or if you're watching, you're not playing a role, uh, you turn things off, it, uh, you don't use multiple devices, things like that. It also talks about decorum. It tells people uh, something that, that judges are telling us a lot of lawyers need to be told. Treat remote proceedings as if you're in the courtroom. Dress as if you're in the courtroom. Act as, in your, as if you're in the courtroom. Make sure your background is not distracting. Uh, we hear a number of judges that are just frankly very frustrated that lawyers seem to think that a remote proceeding shouldn't be treated the same way. I mean, everybody understands if you're having to do it in a spare bedroom because you're quarantining. That's not the issue. The issue is don't show up in a t-shirt and a baseball cap. Uh, uh, make your bed behind you or fuzz out the background. So, so it's a useful order uh, along those lines as well. Probably pretty good guidelines for most business meetings. Oh, I think so. Always, all, uh, I heard the saying one time, dress for the job that you want, not the job that you've got. So. Well, there's a, another issue that, that you flagged that's really interesting and it, it doesn't get a lot of, press coverage, and maybe it gets some actual um, wrong coverage, and that's about stays. You ask the typical person about a stay in Waco, and the rule's going to be, you know, oh, there's never a stay. Texas never stays anything, um, but that's not the case. 
No, I, I was looking at orders coming out last week and there were three stays in one day, all for different grounds. And one case lifting a stay. There was a stay because the judge was staying the case until he ruled on the motion to transfer. There was another case that was stayed because the plaintiff came in and said another court has invalidated the patent. So the judge stayed that. Uh, in another case, the judge stayed the case pending uh, IPR review, but he noted I may rule on the motion to transfer on the venue motion, despite the stay, which we'll get to in a minute. He did that. And then finally, on the last one, uh, he had stayed a case waiting to see what the federal circuit was going to do on mandamus. They denied the mandamus. So he lifted the stay and went forward. So stays and stays are issued and stays are lifted on a pretty regular basis. They just they happen so routinely, they seem to kind of stay under the radar in terms of the national media. Well, it seems the, the lesson to take away from this is the courts being thoughtful and considered about parties' time and court time. Oh, absolutely. There, there, there are always situations where a stay is appropriate. Plaintiffs ask for a stay uh, in a lot of situations. Uh, so it is a tool that, get, that does get used. There's more flexibility than people are aware of. So uh, another case didn't get a lot of publicity, uh, doesn't kind of always fit with the narrative that there's a motion to dismiss for improper venue that's granted, but it's not just the motion, it's the facts of this one that seem to be starting to establish remote work and authorized service centers and really how Judge Albright feels about what makes a regular place of business. That's right. And when I first saw this case, I thought I had already read it because the facts were so similar to another case. And this is one of the ones that the judge uh, stayed uh, last week, but then he got an order out uh, granting the motion to dismiss for improper venue. This is not a convenience case. This is an improper venue case where the issue is whether the defendants have a regular and established place of business in the Western District. And the plaintiff's argument was, well, you've got work at home employees. Uh, you've got authorized service centers. You've got resellers in the district. The sorts of things that we first started looking at in the uh, Cray case back in 2017, uh, which of these facts, when do you have sufficiently, um, when are the work at home employees work, when is their work sufficient that you can charge the defendant is, this is really the defendant's place of business. When is the service center the defendant's place of business as opposed to some someone else's where you can simply drop products off for returns uh, or pick up additional products. So in this case, we have more analysis from Judge uh, Albright explaining this level of activity is insufficient to create venue in the Western District of Texas. So if those are going to be your facts as a plaintiff, you need to study this case and see if your facts are better than ones that he's already dismissed uh, uh, twice. So the, the final final case for this week, um, another, I guess, non-stereotypical case, uh, motion to dismiss patent infringement granted. Right. Um, Judge Albright dismissed the, uh, the plaintiff's claims of infringement in this case because it was a motion to dismiss. He, he said the plaintiff had failed to sufficiently plead direct infringement. Well, where have we heard that before? A couple of weeks ago, he granted a motion to dismiss for unpatentable subject matter, saying 
you didn't sufficiently plead facts from which the court could conclude that it was plausible that there was patentable subject matter. So similar treatment here um, dismisses the case. Now, again, one of the questions that came up in that case is, well, why did he dismiss it with, without prejudice? Why didn't he grant leave to replead? Well, in this case, the court makes a little clearer how that works. He granted the motion to dismiss without prejudice, but with leave to file an amended complaint within 14 days. If the plaintiff doesn't file an amended complaint in that time, the clerk of court, the court assumes the plaintiff doesn't want to amend and the clerk of court is directed to close the case. But another pleadings case where Judge Albright says these, the way you've got this pleaded, I don't see a plausible case for infringement. So more, I mean, another, another good case that a defendant can look to to see, do I have sufficient arguments for getting a case dismissed? Well, it seems the judge is getting more precise and sophisticated in the exact mechanics of making this all happen too. I, I think so. You're, you're seeing uh, a lengthy, detailed analysis of the content of the pleadings, and then you're seeing a, a, a more transparent explanation of why the ruling is what it is. You're not wondering, well, why was it a dismissal instead of the motion granted? He's making clear, you've got 14 days to replead, but I don't have to touch it again if you don't replead. But that gives the plaintiff the opportunity to decide, do I want to replead or can I, do I already know I can't get past that? And if that's the case, I just won't replead. The case goes away. And then perhaps down the road, uh, I'll decide that this is something I want to do. Well, Michael, uh, once again, thank you for, for walking us through this. Uh, we often talk about Judge Albright so frequently we forget that he's fairly new to the bench and a lot of these cases are first impressions for how he's going to handle them. So that's you. correct. And because his cases started out kind of from the beginning, again, the one we were joking about in Dallas was one that was a mature case that he was given. All the rest started out as new cases. So we're just now getting a substantial quantity of cases that are hitting the critical point where, where orders are coming out and, and he's got internally developed uh, the, the ability to crank out orders uh, in a little more detail than he did early on. Well, Michael, thank you. And we'll talk to you next week. All right. Talk to you next week.